Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Because I didn't think there was going to be a lot of people interested. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm David C. Barnett, Senior Arts Reporter at IdeaStream, and I am pleased to help bring today's forum, a conversation with local, national, and international artists on art as a vehicle for activism and social change. On 90.3 WCPN, where I tend to hang out, we've got a team of reporters devoted to exploring current events, everything from opioid overdoses to charter schools to reducing city council to the proliferation of firearms. These reporters of ours fan out across Northeast Ohio, collect the facts, listen to the voices of people with a stake in the issue, and then produce stories. Well, I would like to make the argument that our guests here up on the dais at the City Club today are also reporters in a way. They examine topical issues through architecture, playwriting, acting. They take it a step further, though, by promoting social change. Let me give you a little crib sheet on all of them here. Next to me is Malaz Elgimiabi. El 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 my Sudanese is not that great yet. She's a native of Sudan who relocated here several years ago. She's an architect, artist, and university professor. She was appointed the designer in residence for the Cleveland Foundation's Creative Fusion program last year. Her big focus is nothing less than battling some of the negative, stereo negative effects of gentrification in the Ohio City area by designing a welcome center for some of the community's underserved residents. Omar Curdy's day job is CEO of Friends for Life Rehabilitation Services, but he is also a Cleveland Public Theater board member, as well as being part of the new Mesra Al-Arabi Ensemble, which performs original plays in the Arabic language, including next month's And Then We Met, which goes on the boards at Cleveland Public Theater. And finally, making a quick dash in from New York City, where she will return to go on stage this evening. <laughs> Nicole Salter is an actor and Obie award-winning playwright. She's here to check in on the progress of her latest play, Breakout Session, or Fragors, which you just saw an excerpt from, which is indeed based on the City of Cleveland's dissent decree with the U.S. Department of Justice. That production goes on the boards next month at Cleveland Public Theater. Mm -hmm. All four of us are gonna talk about the intersection of art and social activism for about 25 minutes, and then we're gonna open it up to questions from our sold out audience. <laughs> Malaz, you're Ohio, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna ask each one of them a, a, a question, and then we're gonna get a little Dialogue going, interaction <laughs> going. So Malaz, your Ohio City project is located on West 25th Street. It's across from Lutheran Hospital, if that gives you any kind of location. It's a collaboration between Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority, the Cleveland Foundation, and Land Studio. It's called a welcome center. Who are you welcoming? Um, so I guess that's what the question yes. that 
I had to find out. Okay. When I had this project that in Ohio City that seems to be already a welcoming community. It's diverse, it's thriving, it's one of Cleveland fast growing neighborhoods. The question was who is welcomed into that building? And that question was answered when the people themselves showed up mm -hmm. as we did this design process. So I guess it is the community, the diverse community of Ohio City, regardless of their socioeconomic classes, regardless of um, with all their cultural, racial, and um, age backgrounds. It's also for the people who are serving in the neighborhood the institutions who are part of that fabric of the community. And it's because of the location of it being by the Cuyahoga River and at the, at the gateway to the west side, it's really welcoming to everybody in Cleveland. To find out about more about uh, this area that you're serving now, uh, I suggested a couple minutes ago that you're kind of like a reporter. You certainly did some research and in an unusual way. T tell us about that. You were an Uber driver. <laughs> yes, and I earned more money than an architect. <laughs> <laughs> I should lead that then within my team. Now. Yeah, um, well, one of the things, uh, when, I, when I start a project that in a neighborhood that I don't really know much about, is to really to get to, to know how people experience their neighborhoods. And just helicoptering to people's lives and say, hey, can I talk to you? excuse me, I have this question for you. They didn't seem really genuine, and I wanted to have an organic uh, conversation with the people, and I didn't know how. Um, I'm new to the neighborhood, I have an accent, I wasn't sure if, um, if I will, how would the conversation go, knowing that there's so many uh, places to Ohio City. So I decided just to um, drive an Uber, so I would just go, next to the West Side Market every morning, and I turn on my Uber and Lyft. And just to let you know, Lyft is more popular with African-American community, so Uber needs to step up the diversity game. <laughs> 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 and, um, and yeah, it was, it was most of what I learned more um, from these conversations uh, was what really united the community. People who were, for example, who were, came to the Uber, they wouldn't have had the chance, maybe they were busy, they, they had work, they need to do, um, they have children. They wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to talk with them in the regular setup. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I learned how a mother has to go to a whole uh, next side of town mm -hmm. to have an abortion. Or I learned how people would have to drive or go in Uber for like three miles to have an affordable meal. I also learned that how many people who moved into the neighborhood because of the diversity um, that it um, portrays haven't really formed any genuine relationship with the community around them and they are eager and hungry for that. So yeah. Omar, you are now a member of the theatrical community. Uh, did you have a, a, a background in theater before you started this? Um, not professional. I mean, always performed since I was six years old in um, school performances. So 
This is my first time on a professional stage. You told me that you have, there's a kind of love-hate relationship towards the arts in the Arab-speaking community. Why, why is that? It's not love-hate as much as we're obviously a community that is very rich culturally, and we love to watch theatrical work, and we love to watch the arts. But as, a, as families, we do not think that art provides um, financial security, so some families advocate against choosing art as a career. So we love to go watch it, but we don't always have people doing it. That, that, that sounds familiar, right? <laughs> um, I, I, I dropped in to see a rehearsal a couple days ago, mm -hmm. and uh, you're exploring some taboo topics. Mm -hmm. are, you, are you worried that when the show opens, people are going to be throwing tomatoes at you or anything like that? I'm actually more excited to see um, our community and the community at large be open to um, see these topics discussed on stage. And what really matters is that we have this platform to be represented. And, we, and it all starts with representation. If you look at the history of Arab American community being represented, I mean, just let's talk about Hollywood. You would have an Arab, an, a non-Arab actor play an Arab character. And then when we had an Arab actor, they were playing non-Arab characters. And then when we finally had an Arab actor, they were playing Arab characters that were terrorists. So it didn't take until, I think, 2018, when that show Rami came out on Hulu, that we finally saw a normal Arab-American family on television. And it's kind of sad and upsetting. But what's encouraging is that we have places like Cleveland Public Theater that provided um, my community a platform to just be represented and to just have a place to tell our stories and to just be open about our experiences as Arab-Americans living in Cleveland and to give the um, Cleveland at large community an opportunity to come um, learn our stories and honestly you're going to realize that all our problems are universal. We just differ with maybe the way we talk, the way we look, but honestly our problems are universal and we just, every community has its own spices. There you go. Nicole, uh, Raymond Bobkin came up to you contacted you and said, I think there'd be a really good play about Cleveland's consent decree. What was your immediate reaction to that? <laughs> Boring. <laughs> Sorry, Raymond. But and, truly boring. And how did, you, how did, how did that evolve? What, what happened? Well, I, like my colleagues here, believe in the um, transformative power of the arts. So just because I wasn't immediately interested doesn't mean that it wasn't stage-worthy or a valuable um, endeavor. Mm -hmm. um, and CPT and Raymond proceeded to open the city up to me mm -hmm. in a way that I have never been invited into any city that I've been uh, a commissioned writer before. I spoke with your mayor. I spoke with your chief of police. I spoke with your council members. I spoke with heads of Black Lives Matter. I spoke with officers. I spoke with community members. I spoke with head of um, community policing. Like these people in most cities you don't have access to, particularly if you don't live and vote mm -hmm. where they are. Mm -hmm. They're like, why am I talking to you? Like, what you got? Um, and I, I was blown away by that access. So began to feel a responsibility um, grow and an interest grow in the matter. You, uh, 
when you were when you were doing that, you spoke. You went to the mayor, and you saw the mayor and the chief of police, and you were scheduled for fifteen minutes. And we spoke for hours. Um, hour and a half. Yeah. So, I, so I, obviously, they're probably a little hesitant. But I'm charming. <laughs> There's the answer. <laughs> did you? Did you? Did you go into those sessions with a list of questions? Oh, absolutely. I, I was only scheduled to be there for half an hour. I wanted to hit some key points and get a clearer understanding of how the consent decree was um, affecting the work that they were doing as elected officials, um, appointed officials. Um, but everyone in this city seemed to have a real stake in the matter. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a lot to say about the impact that it was having, um, positive and or negative, about its origins. Um, and about what they thought it should be. Mm. Um, and that process really showed me how, how important the issue was mm -hmm. and how much people had at stake and how that um, stake was, a, was prohibitive in conversation. Because mm -hmm. when you have a lot to lose, you can't afford to consider other things. Mm -hmm. um, and so it greatly informed how I went about creating the work that I did at CPT. Also, I. <laughs> Raymond has a, a wonderful way of um, being welcoming and inviting to everyone. And in my research, I found that there are people that CPT are, know very well who were not on the same side of things. So I said, I can't write a play that, that kind of takes an angle. Mm -hmm. I have to write a play that brings them together the way that Raymond has. Now, uh, Omar, you, you're collecting your information also. I mean, how, how, are you, how is this play constructed. So back to this genius right here. Um, Raymond yeah. like a love fest. Yeah. truly a genius actually and I, everybody give him a round of applause. Yeah. He deserves it. So Raymond has this magical way where he could put so many different people in one room yes. and make them all magically I just we just start talking and there's literally like just a little bit of guidance but we just talk about our problems about our history about our lives and he puts it all together in a production that makes sense because when you look at our stories before they go into production i'm like everything is just so different like this is like a story about hijab and then you have a story about a family and then you have a story about war but then Raymond magically puts it all together and all makes sense. So the process of making our productions is so enjoyable because we actually get to learn while we're making a production. This group right here, some of the members of Masrah Cleveland Arabi are here. We didn't know each other. We didn't know each other before coming together to make the production and we didn't even try to be friends, but it just happens naturally <laughs> because we actually know so much about ourselves. And that's how it happens, and that's how the information is collected. And there's no like pressure, there's nothing. You just feel comfortable in the room because you're given that freedom to finally be who you are and to finally own your narrative. And that's what makes it special because we are owning our narrative, whereas everybody else out there think that they own our narrative. There's a fun quote that says, people, non-Middle Eastern, uh, non-Arabs or non-Middle Easterners go to the Middle East for a day and they write an article. They go for a week and they write a book. They stay for a month and they write nothing. And because they don't know. 
and with CPT, they are the learners. We, we are learners, but they are the learners because Raymond sits there and he absorbs everything. Faye sits there and they absorb everything. And they allow us to actually own our narrative. They give us the guidance, but they allow us to actually own our story. When you say, they, you stay, they say for a month, they don't write anything, is because why? They suddenly realize, oh, I really don't know what I'm writing about. Because they, they realize it's not their story to tell. Yeah, yeah, okay. And that's, and that's the problem today, especially in our crazy political world. You have all these people showing up on TV claiming they're experts, but they really know nothing. Have they lived through the civil war in Lebanon? No. Have they lived through the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? No. So you're not an expert. You might have read 25 books, but that doesn't make you an expert. Malaz, one of the interesting things, when we were talking, and, you, and I got a tour of, of, the, of the Welcome Center a couple days ago, and one of the things I found interesting was that you heard the word gentrification, and it's always pitched as negative. And you said that there's like a plus side to gentrification for the neighborhood and the downside. Talk about the plus side for, as far as the residents were concerned. Well, it's not my say, like what Omar said. Mm -hmm. It's what the residents told of what it means to them mm -hmm. to be in a neighborhood that is changing. Some of them have lived in this neighborhood for a long time. And I, and I worked with um, residents of um, the two CMHA public housing uh, properties, Lakeview and um, Riverview, right. both have around, uh, both in, in total have like maybe 2,000 mm -hmm. residents in between them, and uh, with Riverview being a senior housing. Um, a lot of the people who uh, lived in uh, Riverview, the senior housing, also lived in the townhomes before that were families, so they were there from the, when they were kids. And they've seen the transformation of the neighborhood. And there was one of the positive <laughs> things that came in those conversation is how, how uh, with gentrification comes resources, like resources that leads to safety. So it becomes a safe neighborhood, because it that was not a safe neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I remember that. It wasn't a safe neighborhood. I mean, it still has its problem up to the, until today. Yeah. But there is, there, is a lot of, um, there is a large amount of sense of safety um, in the neighborhood now with the resources that are uh, is available. And just it's the amount of people walking around. The amount of people walking around, the, the services that is there yeah. now, like um, the proximity, like the, there's a grocery store in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. There is uh, a better and improved um, transportation system. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of institutions that are, who have been working, the, the, the charities, the, ca the churches, um, the religious institution and the nonprofit who's been working in the neighborhood for a long time serving the homeless population, the um, low-income families, the immigrants. There's a lot of um, thriving community of service that is also uh, benefiting from, from some of these um, resources. Now there is other stuff that are also comes negative with gentrification, um, like the, the segregation that starts to happen when uh, between people and that segregation which might not sometimes be racial it can be economical and a lot of people in their neighborhood can feel alienated from the services that is uh, that they see that this thriving culture they can't be part of it they can't afford a meal mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. right down the street they right. can't invite right. their family for a cup of coffee they and to get a cup of coffee, you were telling me they get on a bus, right? And go to Clark Denison or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, the, 
the cheapest cup of coffee in Ohio State would probably cost you about $3. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you want to have a cup of coffee every day, that's, that's for some people, that third of their income. So mm-hmm. that's not possible sometimes, yeah. Nicole, some of the reality that you're dealing with, the core of your story has to do with a fictional firm that the city of Cleveland has hired to conduct implicit bias training. Was there, was there a particular audience that you're aiming for in that story? My audience is always everybody. Um, my audience is always everybody. I don't. I don't think there's um, a particular audience as much as there is a just a, a slight correction. There are a firm seeking. Seeking. They haven't gotten it. They yet. haven't gotten um, the contract. But I, I really want to talk to everyone. One of the things that I try to do in my work is to get beyond the, um, the facts and get down to the truth mm-hmm. of the matter, uh, which is why um, fiction is appealing to me, because when you deal with the facts um, in, the, in a documentary style of creating narrative, you can often get bogged down and mm-hmm. not underneath um, the core universal human needs that are, that are at conflict. Um, you can just talk about the, the kind of surface issues with the difference between you know, affirmative action and some other policy, right? But at the heart of the matter around the consent decree I'd found is the issue of trust. Um, so let's talk about that. Let's get to the root of that. What is it? What is trust? Why do human beings seek it? What do we think we're going to have when we get it? What do we think we're going to lose if we lose it? Um, and so the, while the play allows for the conversation to happen about the topical issue to kind of draw you in, at the root of it, it's about the, those human issues. And hopefully, yay, Beth Wood, my director. <laughs> um, hopefully dramatizes why, why the um, issue is so complex. We all sit in the silos of our communities and we have discussions about these topics and we go, well, why don't people just do that? Clearly that's the answer. Mm-hmm. Like, that was stupid, you know? But when you, when you find a, a, mer- a story that merges the complexity of that, you can say, oh, that, that's the root of the conflict. That's why this will always be a problem because I don't trust you. Mm-hmm. So, let, so how do I trust you mm-hmm. when, right. when I don't perceive what you perceive? and you don't perceive what I perceive. How can we come to see each other's different perceptions as complementary and trust you anyway? For all of you, what, what, what do you see, I, you were getting at that, Nicole, what do you see, what is it about art that lends itself to addressing social issues? I, I can go, I guess. Yes, go, yes. go, 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 go. Um, it's a universal language. I mean, let's talk about music, for example. I mean, we can all enjoy music in a language that we don't understand, and we can all feel the magic behind it. We all often watch foreign films, and we all enjoy them with subtitles or not, and you could feel it. And something like that happened when we did our first production, Dream of Home, Halom Watan. Um, we had an audience member that was from the Dominican Republic, did not speak Arabic nor English. So our productions come with super titles. So whatever's in Arabic is translated, whatever's in English is translated. This, um, this lady spoke no Arabic, no English, Spanish only. 
and she mm -hmm. came to us after the production and she was crying. She goes like, I didn't understand it, but I felt it. And that's the power of art, because if you don't feel it, then there's no point behind it. Malaz, you are using art to create a space for people to live and work in. Talk about that. Um, but the way I look at art in a, in a, in a more of a functional. So for, for me, art is a tool. Mm -hmm. as, a, as it's not the output itself. The yeah, output right. is the issue that the art is trying to address. Mm -hmm. and, and for example, like when we worked on the project for the Riverview, we established values in the community because we wanted to use those values as the pillar for our design. Mm -hmm. We went and talked to the people, we established what are the values that are going to bring people together to form a community that is inclusive of everyone, that is diverse. But the last, the fourth value that inspired the art that brought people together was dignity. Mm. A lot of people spoke of an issue they experience, a feeling they experience yeah. in their neighborhood that mm -hmm. when they want, they want to feel dignified in their community. And we went around and asked, what does that mean for you? Right. Mm -hmm. And what she says, like, what do you perceive as dignity for you? Some, some perceive dignity as the ability to contribute, to be, to be of value to my community, to not being seen <coughs> as, a, as someone who's redundant. And, uh, or taking advantage of mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. or, or taking advantage, or someone, uh, the dignity is to be able to provide for my family. Yeah. But um, one simple thing that I've kept hearing was the digni dignity to be seen. Oh. Simple action of being seen as part of the community, someone to look at you, recognize you as a human. Mm -hmm. And that's, what, that's when the art became the tool. Then we decided to do the uh, photography project, the Inside Out, where we took 250 portraits of people from the community of Ohio City people who lived in the community, people who work there, the um, people at high positions at the Lutheran hospitals, as well as nurses, uh, security guards, residents, children, everyone, and then use that art as the tool to bring the people together. Where did you put the, those photographs? Uh, on the building we came. On the actual building. On the exterior of the building, we wrapped the whole building with wow. photographs of the community. Wow. And by that, we wanted to the, the art to be the statement to say, okay, here's, here's us, and this is what we value, and this is how we feel, and, and to make, so then the art become the call of action, and not the action itself. Mm -hmm. So people can come and say, okay, here's the call of action, what do we need to do now? I'm David C. Barnett, senior arts reporter for Ideastream, and today at the City Club, we are listening to a forum on art as a vehicle for activism and social change, featuring Malaz Eljimiabi, interdisciplinary designer, artist, and professor, Omar Kurdi, Cleveland Public Theater board member, and Masra Al Arabi, advisory committee and, and ensemble member, and Nicole Salter actor and Obie Award-winning playwright. Her latest work is Breakout Session or Fagors. We're about to begin the audience participation section. Now, now you're, you've been in the audience just sitting there and looking and, and taking it all in. Now we'd like to hear from you. Questions that maybe we've inspired her or maybe additional comments that you'd like to make about the intersection of art 
We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our live stream or radio broadcast on 90.3 WCPN in the few seconds that it's left before we go back to impeachment. Um, if you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club and the City Club staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today are content and program coordinator Bliss Davis and the City Club's communication and marketing person, Julia Wong. May we have the first question? I suppose this is a chicken and egg question. Places like Hingetown, Ohio City, Tremont have developed rather diverse communities and a very active arts presence. If you had your way and you were looking at something like the Opportunity Corridor, how would you involve the arts in the development of that area? The way I would look at it is to start with who is in Opportunity Corridor and have that discussion with them. Ask the people who are there, who are gonna be impacted by the art, impacted by um, the project in, in form of like is a, whether it be in an architecture project or an, an art and architecture and see what value it's going to bring to their life. Mm -hmm. What are they trying to use this art um, to, to achieve? I had the talk before with um, Terry Schwartz who worked with Opportunity Corridor. She's the head of the CUDC. And we talked about um, things like making an art museum in neighborhood where it's not traditionally seen as an, an acceptable, like an acceptable location for it. Bring in, bring in f good quality art, fine art, uh, community, in fostering and nourishing the community itself, the art within the community, in a, in a really um, resourceful environment. But this was a suggestion now what I would do is take that and check it in with the community. Mm -hmm. See, is this a good idea for you? What, what does, um, what, what, how do you see the value of art? And, and start there. So instead of me trying to immediately impose what I think the neighborhood could benefit from as an art project. Mm -hmm. Another question. So, so I see on the, on the community, um, uh, community center side how you know, the output of art really uh, naturally kind of, kind of reaches kind of a wide, diverse group of folks. On, on the um, artistic side, um, in terms of when we have productions and, and that are de uh, detailing you know, social activism, um, a lot of times these productions kind of end up in their own silos or their own echo chambers and only reach to people who already get it, frankly, right? So, um, what, on, on the artistic side, what kind of uh, things do you think could benefit to creating a production that's really accessible to um, bringing in people that really need to hear what you have to say uh, versus just kind of remaining insular? You know? and, and I see, sorry, uh, on the last note, uh, on the remaining insular side, I see how it, the, the advantage to that to um, energizing the base you know, and really kind of you know, uh, serving that function. But I'm just curious on, on the outside to bring people who really need to hear these messages into the theater. I think that's a, a huge issue in the American nonprofit theater world especially, but in general, um, 
I think it speaks to the quality of the institution you're dealing with when you think about their capacity to do that or not, or their willingness to do that or not. When you're working with a place like CPT um, and some other places that I've worked at, a Luna Stage in New Jersey, um, places that are, are looking to fill the conventional form where people come to the theater from their subscription base, but also ways in which they can take the work to people that they feel would, could find it useful. Um, those models um, sometimes are poo-pooed because there, there are no awards to get from taking your work to the community. The, the Times is not going to come reviewed at. Um, there, there's no glory in that. So the people who are doing it are doing it to have the conversation with the community for the benefit of the community. Mm -hmm. So I think it's happening perhaps more than you might think, but there's no glory in that work. Omar, I, I'm yes. wondering, we didn't, I didn't ask you, who are you playing to with, with these productions? Are you playing to the Arab-speaking community that's saying, hey, here's a, a, a play that's talked in my language, or are you speaking to a larger community to understand who we are? Both, and I was actually planning to answer part of this question as well, because while we're not really touching on a lot of uh, social justice topics, um, we're just beginning to tell our stories on stage. And that is the beginning of a conversation, mm -hmm. because this is something that has never happened in Cleveland. I mean, I don't want to speak about the country as a whole, but I mean, I'm sure there's not a lot of Arabic-speaking um, theater companies around the country. So this is something that is very unique, not just to Cleveland, but to the nation as well. Mm -hmm. So that is a conversation starter. Second, um, from just looking at the audience member that came to our um, four sold-out shows, actually, um, <laughs> There, there, there was a majority of actually um, like half and half. There was a balance of like non-Arab uh, non uh, audience members and Arab audience members, and they were both um, very engaged. And some people returned to um, second shows that came to watch it again. One key story for me that I think actually just summarizes this whole answer is uh, we had an audience member who is, um, she's a Palestinian lady who is dating um, uh, she's dating an American, um, and she wrote Raymond an email, and she said, for the first time, I felt so proud to be an Arab American because my boyfriend got to see part of my culture that he doesn't see on the news. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're starting a conversation about, like, look, there is this community exists here, and you know what? They're not scary. Yes, they are, their food is amazing. <laughs> In my opinion, the best cuisine on earth. And um, their food is amazing, their songs are fun, and their stories are similar yet different. So that alone is a conversation starter. And my goal is for everyone to come watch our shows because we are never limited to a specific audience member. Art does not have a specific audience. Art is for everyone. Nicole. I just want to say that in our country, our culture treats art as though it's this thing that you do for diversion. Mm -hmm. um, it's what you do when you're not at work, when you want to lay back and don't want to do anything. Um, but <clears throat> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think entertainment uh, is the in, our, our engagement principle that draws you in and allows you to stay for the experience, but that's not the purpose of it. Mm -hmm. The purpose of the art, largely speaking, all arts, is, is to bring 
consciousness to our to our collective evolution. Mm -hmm. Who are we? Do we like who we are? What if we were different? Mm -hmm. How can like that? That's that's the the, the point of the the kind of secular sacred world that we invite people into. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel like a lot of the work that needs to happen is about the the re-education of the American populace, particularly, but perhaps globally, around the usefulness of art. There's a reason why the nonprofit world of theater sits with the nonprofit world of churches and schools. They're all 501c3s. When you go to school, are you like, entertain me? When you go to church, you're like, oh, this pastor sucks. <laughs> he should tell a joke, you know? Like, no, you go because you know you're going to be nourished spiritually, intellectually, psychologically. Mm -hmm. And that's what the arts are for. So when you're seeking nourishment, you mm -hmm. engage art. Mm -hmm. Whether that's healing, whether that's enlightenment, whether that's um, catharsis, whatever that nourishment is. Mm -hmm. And if all you're seeking is diversion, you've missed the point. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think you're also lying to yourself. Because when you think about the stories that, that resonate for you in your life, the ones that you refer to, that have nothing to do with your experience. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you quote Yoda, do you know Yoda? <laughs> Did you have a personal experience? It's a, it's a make-believe thing, yet it had a resonance with you that has guided principles of, in, in relationships in your life. Mm -hmm. You know, I know many black women out here are like, till you do right by me, <laughs> everything you do is going fair. You know, like, that has nothing to do with anything you've actually experienced. You don't live on a farm in the South. You live in Brooklyn, you know? Like, but there's a reason why those things resonate with you. It's, it's because it's sitting at the root of the purpose of the, of the, purpose of the art. Yep. That's what it does, and that's why it's powerful. Because mm -hmm. it, can, it can change your perspective mm -hmm. on something. It could change the way you treat somebody. Mm -hmm. Amen. 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 We have another, another question. Yes, I was just wondering, this is for the panel as a whole, if you can talk about how your experiences and collaborations with foreign-born people have enriched what you give to us. Foreign-born people? They, they all have to be foreign-born? <laughs> I just, I'm, okay, I'm highlighted here. Do I have to leave? No. <laughs> okay, um, so, well, I'm a foreign-born person here, and uh, thanks to President Trump, I am here, actually. <laughs> I'm Sudanese, and um, I'm, my country was part of the travel ban. I ended up staying in Cleveland because I couldn't leave mm -hmm. Cleveland. So, um, but I've, a lot of the people I've met whether it be me or a lot of people who were, who were born um, outside, they, they, they want to be part of the community, uh, in this new community. They want to contribute. They want to continue their, um, their contribution to, to whatever place they are. And um, one of the things, for example, during this project, I've met, we're doing the uh, community outreach to try to talk to people about the design of this community center in Ohio City. And I went to um, Lakeview 
and I was talking with the management and they said there's a, so I think we, they said we, we think there's a Somalian family here. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, can you please call them and let them, there's a Sudanese woman. They just want to meet you. Uh, we didn't say anything about what we are talking about. Mm. And I waited mm -hmm. at the community center and like four women came with their children. They said, where's the Sudanese sister? And I sat there for two hours trying to explain the project. We don't speak the same language. We, we come from different um, cultural backgrounds, but it was very important for me that they understand that they, their voice matter mm -hmm. in this conversation. And as soon as they realize that this project is a, a project for the whole community, that it's a park where they could take their children to, instead of taking them to the one that is five miles away, as they became so engaged into the project they, um, they graced us with amazing food. Now I said Somalian food is better than Arabic food. <laughs> but they, Technically, they they're Arab, actually. They're <laughs> of, okay, they're not. They're, <laughs> part the, they're, part, they're part of the federation, whatever there you go. But, um, but yeah, they, they, they shared their food with us. They cooked for all our design charrettes that we held. Mm. And then not only that, they, they contributed with their voices, their vision for mm -hmm. the neighborhood, and they continue to be involved in our art project. Mm -hmm. It's cool. So, but I mean, but also I want to say something that nobody, for example, I'm foreign, and I, obviously I was when I was talking to people. The first thing was, they would say is, "Where are you from?" I was never made to feel foreign mm. here by the community um, that I worked with, mm -hmm. because I think. A lot of the people understand that we are same inherently. Mm -hmm. If they can see that you're genuine mm -hmm. about your intentions toward them, or they can trust you, which mm -hmm. was what you were mentioning earlier, the, the boundaries of being born inside or being outside mm -hmm. of which uh, race you are, or which nationality you are, it starts to dissolve. Mm -hmm. And we really just meet as people. I have, I mean, I probably have more common mm -hmm. things with um, the residents in Riverview because I grew up with my, uh, raised by my grandmother. And as soon as I walked into that building with senior housing, and I just felt home. Mm -hmm. So I felt the, the, the warmth of the, the people that welcomed you. My, my son, my six year old son, would come and play violin inside and they would everyone would give him a dollar <laughs> <laughs> so um i mean i i feel sometimes there are people who feel foreign in their own country foreign from the people mm -hmm. in their own community mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. without even being born outside mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i want to add something to that while i'm not foreign born i'm <laughs> I'm part of uh, the scheme that Trump is trying to change. My mom came here to deliver me because the American passport was always the dream. And I'm very thankful for actually being an American citizen because I get to do things that I love here. But we have, um, and I'm going to speak about our theater um, group, we have members that are not just only foreign born. We come from so many, not just different countries, but also different religious groups. And that alone is so rich. We have, we have Muslims that are Sunni, Shiite, and then we have Christian. 
and then we have members of the Druze faith. Mm. And, and when we're all in that room, we are no longer foreign. Because what unites us is, is that message that we have a story to tell. And when you have a story to tell, and when you know that there's a, there's a negative perception of your whole community as a whole, not just one specific faith, they don't only tell stories about a certain faith group, they just tell stories about us as a whole. So that unifies us, and we're no longer foreign in that room when we're trying to tell a story. And, and that goes um, with what Malas said, that sometimes I feel like it's, it's our responsibility too, whether we want to feel foreign or not, because we can also create that live stream. I could, I mean, I was not raised here. I was raised in the Middle East and I could have came here and I could have just stuck with whatever I learned over there and didn't allow myself to absorb what was provided to me here. And then I would have stayed um, a foreigner, but I don't see myself as a foreigner because you could throw me in whatever random country in the world and I'm going to try to become that person from there because that's how we change the world. So it's really on us whether we want to feel like foreigners or we don't. And we should not listen to the people that want to make us feel like foreigners because they don't get to decide that. So when somebody, when somebody says, and there's a term that they use in the Arab American community, and like, I used to get be called the boater. So, so like I'm fresh off the boat, basically. And I'm like, I mean, I use a plane. So, <laughs> um, so I'm, and I'm like, I don't think I'm a boater. I don't think I'm any of that. I mean, I'm here. This is my home. And I'm going to make it my home. So you don't get to call me a boater because I'm, I could call you something else. And I could you know, a busser or whatever. But like, <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know how they were conceived. Um, but but the, the, the point of the matter is, like, it's no one's responsibility. And it's no one's right to call you a foreigner or not. Because when you're in a place, that is your place. And, and, and you make that place your place. So that's it. Maybe we got another question over here. So I'm not sure of you all's familiarity with um, Daryl Davis. Um, he was a jazz musician whose notoriety came outside of music. But I listened to him speak yesterday, and he spoke about the evolution of ignorance to destruction um, and how we don't understand things, and in turn, it leads us to not want them to exist on a more drastic level as it evolves. So as people who create art, how do you help bridge the gap between ignorance and understanding in a form, in a um, something that is very easy to construe or change how you receive that medium. To me, that's the purpose of story. You go to see how and why a transformation occurs. Have you ever been to a film or a play or read a book and it was like a, a person goes to the grocery store and then you turn the page and it's like they're king mm -hmm. and you're like, how <laughs> and why? That's the, I mean, that's the whole point of engaging the art form of storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, if you life won't tell you how or why, right? Things happen and you're like, how, why? You'll never get to know. But the reason that the, the narrative form I think was birthed in the human spirit long before language actually was birthed is because we want to share how and why the transformation occurs, mm -hmm. how you can repeat it how it could be possible, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so I think when tackling ignorance, um, being able to show how and why something is mm -hmm. helps with understanding. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't necessarily help with trust um, because 
trust is not something we all there's the adage trust has to be earned mm -hmm. you need to earn my trust but really if you make a bunch of people jump through hoops to earn your trust you can also just decide still not to give it that's true because i just don't trust you <laughs> right so how uh, you can also trust something you know nothing about you have no understanding how the how the food got to your plate but you ate it <laughs> Right? You have no idea how the plane works, but I'm about to get on it, mm -hmm. and I hope it does work. <laughs> mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So the, trust is an, is an interesting thing, which is which the benefit of my learning from writing this play, mm -hmm. is how that works. Another question. Our next question comes from Twitter. Um, it reads, I have long regarded the walls of the inner city as a canvas for the poor. With public art trending in the city, it feels that the aforementioned canvases are now exclusively commissioned by institutions. Where and how can the poor find their voice in this changing landscape? So I have a, um, so that, that decision can come from the institutions themselves. Mm -hmm. if the structures of funding and how to create art and all of that comes from philanthropy. It's channels. There's this like bureaucracy. Bureaucracy that goes to the 501c and then that or to the artist. But a lot of institutions or people who have hold power mm -hmm. in in terms either form of money or decision making like um, city uh, CDCs, mm -hmm. the corporate uh, the, the developments that they can. As part of, I mean, they are CDCs. They inherently, this is their job, to create, to use the resources they have with the community. So, making the artists is not the uh, the people who are from the community, like the artists, whether they're whatever that community is, is poor or or uh, not. They are rich in talents mm -hmm. to actually be the one who are making the art. Mm -hmm. um, in our pro in our project, the Riverview. Uh, welcome Center, when we did the art, the outprint and imprint, it was a conscious decision to do the photography, not only mm -hmm. by um, one single artist, like let's say I, I was the lead artist, right? But to reach out to see who else in the neighborhood is, um, can contribute to that work. And actually we have here Michael, Michael Cannon, who was the second photographer and uh, resident of Riverview, that we, I, as soon as we learned that we have this common uh, interest mm -hmm. in art, which is photography, another, with another also photographer, Casey Rarick, who is also local from the community, we decided <coughs> to do the project together. So even an institution can, CDCs or funders can create art projects that are with the community, as opposed like for them. And yeah, maybe that's maybe it, it. It's sometimes it's top down, and sometimes it's the art decisions, this artist decisions themselves. But mm -hmm. I find it more practically is when the people who ha who hold the decision making makes that uh, clear in their intention when they're doing the artwork mm -hmm. to say, are you working with the community? Mm -hmm. Who are you working with? Mm -hmm. And 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 how? Have you have you explored option be beyond yours yourself as an artist or as an institution? Another question. Oh. Hi, um, I just wanted to go back to the trust. The way to show trust is transparency. 
Transparency is very difficult for some people, but just being yourself and being open to others and showing your spirit and just who you are as a person, mm -hmm. that's how you earn people's trust. Because if you give that transparency, you'll probably get it back. Mm. And I was just hoping that, um, can you um, tell us how you would be able to give that transparency uh, for the board, um, the panel, I mean, in your communities? How can you do that to bring the communities together because you have a platform to do so? Mm -hmm. Is that for me? All of us. All of us. I mean, we bring transparency when we establish a conversation with all members of the community. Everyone is invited, and I'm going to speak about um, my experience with CPT. Everyone is invited to be part of the conversation. So when we, tell, when we tell our stories, these stories are based and inspired by the stories of people who actually came to be part of the conversation. Our conversation also continues um, over um, social networking sites. It also continues between friends and, and families, we have an advisory. Um, we have an advisory committee for Masrah Tlibna Al Arabi that is very diverse, where the conversation continues there. So I think transparency begins when you open that door for everybody to be part of the conversation, and that's something that I'm very proud to have with Masrah Tlibna Al Arabi because you truly see that just with who's part of it. I mean, I mean, you look at that table, and I mean, we have someone who wears a hijab and then we have some Lebanese cast members and then we have an Egyptian who grew up in Saudi Arabia so that's like double the effort um, <laughs> and, and then you have Hussein who is an incredible 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 I wish I could say it like seven million times artist who's from Iraq who is here in Cleveland and is finally breathing, and I say the word breathing, because he could finally work in art through CPT. He came here as a refugee. He had an amazing career in Iraq, being um, as, uh, doing set design for Iraqi television. And then he came here as a refugee, lost everything. Obviously, art was always there. And then CPT came, giving him, and we have another amazing artist who's not with us here. His name is Abbas Al-Hilali giving them that chance to finally breathe through their art. And that's transparency in itself because they are finally being able to be themselves. They're finally allowed to break free from their refugee status, to, to become the artists who are they're meant to be. And, and I think that's something that I'm very proud to have through our experience, experience with CPT. And I wish that you could um, have a chance to hopefully look at some of his art pieces um, because he's amazing, and I'm bahkilum. I want to try. I'm bahkilum. A dish into bani Adam, not tabi'i. Fanan, not tabi'i. Oh, a dish mafsukim fi. And he's also our scenic designer for this production. So you're, when you come watch us, hopefully you better buy your tickets. I remember. I'm gonna remember all your faces. So if I don't see you there, I'm gonna find you through the live stream. Uh, today at the City Club, we've been listening to a forum on art as a vehicle for activism and social change. You just heard from Malaz El-Jimiyabi, an interdisciplinary designer, artist, and professor. Omar Kurdi, who is CEO of Friends for Life Rehabilitation Services, but also a Cleveland Public Theater board member and Masra Cleveland Al-Arabi 
advisory committee and ensemble member and the uh, commuting Nicole Salter, actor and Obie Award winner. She's the playwright of Breakout Session or Fragors. Support for student participation in City Club forums comes from the Char and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation and the William M. Weiss Foundation with additional support from the donors you'll find listed in today's program. We're happy to have you here. And that brings us to the end of today's program. We thank you panelists and we thank you members and friends of the City Club with special thanks to our City Club members whose financial support makes the work of the City Club possible. To find out more about upcoming forums, you can click support the City Club you can click over to cityclub.org. We've been talking about transparency. We've been talking about respect. We've been talking about trust. And all the more important is face-to-face -face communication and getting together and talking about this stuff where you're talking right to the mm -hmm. person, okay? That's the forum for today. I'm David C. Barnett. Thanks for joining us today. Adjourn. <laughs>